Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. How are we doing this morning? We're now afternoon. We're glad that you're here. My name is Pastor Craig, and uh, if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, just want to say welcome. Uh, just so glad that you're with us. I see a, a group here that's visiting from uh, South Metro, from Lika. We love Pastor Trey, Pastor Allen. I see Autumn. Uh, yeah, just welcome them. Put your hands together for them. They, uh, the whole Torres family I see here. I know, Autumn, you just got back from D.C., probably an amazing experience at the Eagle Initiative, and just glad that, uh, that you're here and you gathered for the beginning of a brand new series called Revealed. Everybody say Revealed. If you didn't receive a message card when you came in, you can raise your hand right quick, and uh, our ushers will serve you. Uh, if you didn't receive one, they'll help you out there in the back. Well, maybe they walked out the back of the... There, there we go. So uh, they'll, they'll put one in your hand. Just leave your hand up just a second. Also, if you're a version person, you can open up your version app and uh, click on events, and then you'll see Dwelling Place there based on your location services, and you'll see the message in front of you there as well. Uh, really, really excited about what God is going to speak over the next few weeks as we jump into this wonderful book. I will make one quick statement. If um, you didn't get the opportunity this week to listen to our podcast, um, our podcast, of course, on our Facebook, on our website as well, uh, dwellingplacemovement.org, but we found myself, I found myself this week as I was preparing for what God would speak this morning, um, really wanting to give uh, and serve you the most effective way possible. And uh, because of our church and the very dispositions and backgrounds, we have some people who have exposure to the book of Revelation, others that maybe you've never opened the book. Uh, and so what I did is uh, we recorded about a 50-minute teaching that gives you kind of a panoramic view of the entire book. So all 22 chapters are there on the podcast as we pull the main message of um, this book. And I think many of you may have because I think it's over 100 listens this week. So um, if you haven't, it's not too late. You can jump on this week and uh, you can just listen through that. Uh, I encourage you to take your Bible. And uh, because there's so much reading in it in Scripture, just take your Bible uh, and sit down and just allow God uh, to speak to you as we go through the book. Uh, but I believe that God is going to speak. And rem- I, I, I'm going to be honest with you, I, I haven't had this much expectation for a series in a long time. Um, and not because I want to uh, satisfy the curiosity and the inquisition and, and, and kind of be an intriguing study, but because I really think that Jesus Christ has ordained for these moments for us to hear what he wants to say, particularly what's happening even in our nation this week. And uh, the last book of the Bible, if you turn there with me, Revelation chapter one, the 66th book, it begins with these words. I'm gonna begin reading in verse one. The Bible says, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Jump down to verse three. Blessed is the one who reads aloud. Notice that. Doesn't read internally. Don't read with your inside voice. Don't read even on paper, but read aloud. In fact, this, because of the imagery we'll talk about extensively in a moment, is actually to be better understood when you read it out loud. I'll never forget the first time I read this book in one sitting. I'd never done that until a few years ago. It changed my entire view. It takes about 45 minutes reading right through the book, 22 chapters, no notes, about 45 minutes, and I began to see the book as one message, and that's how it's intended. And I've since read it. This week I read it twice in that way, just reading through the text. But he says that, that there is a blessing that's promised to those who read this aloud. Notice that. It's amazing. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Why all of this blessing? Because the time is near. Now the question is, if this is the only book of the Bible that comes with this promise, if this money back guarantee, if you will, there's no other book in the Old Testament, New Testament that says if you'll read it, you'll be blessed, right? If that's true, then how, how come so many people ignore this book? Can I be honest with you? Because it's weird. It's weird. I mean, you got locusts that are literally coming out of the pits of hell with tails with the stings of scorpions. You've got a lake of fire. You've got these demon-possessed beasts and harlots. I mean, it's just weird, right? Case in point, if you look in chapter 5, we'll look at next week, verse 6. This is a picture of Jesus Christ. Okay? This is a picture of Jesus. 
He was a lamb, the Bible says in chapter 5, verse 6, that was slain that has seven eyes and seven oars. Now, folks, I'm sorry, that's just weird, okay? There's just no way around that. Like, let's be honest, parents. If your son came home from school one day, and he had this doodle on a sheet of paper, and you asked him, hey, son, where did you see that picture? And he said, I saw it in a vision. Your next question would be, what in the world are you smoking, right? That's legal in Seattle. That's legal in Colorado. That's not legal in Atlanta, you know, I mean, really, case in point, you go to chapter 12, and maybe you've heard of this battle before, but there's the angel. He's the archangel Michael, and he gets in this fight with the great beast, Satan, the devil. And the devil loses and is thrown from heaven. Folks, if you look at this image, this is just cool, right? This looks like something you would just see in Helm's, you know, realm, so to speak, or Helm's deep from the Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, it's just an amazing, amazing image when you think about it. You go on to chapter 17, and you meet this woman. She's a looker. Looker, but you wouldn't call her a lady unless you're going to call her a lady of the night. Why? Because she's a prostitute that's literally riding on the back of this beast, and this beast has seven heads and ten horns. Now, why in the world does John write like this? This is a question begged to be asked. I mean, when you're reading through this wonderful Literature. I mean, it's a prophetic book, but, but you're reading through it, God's Word. Was he just walking around the island of Patmos one day and happened to run into a bunch of mushrooms? You know, it's like, what is happening here? Well, no, 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 no. Here's what's going on. It's really important for you to understand this. This book was published in the year 95 A.D. And the Roman emperor at the time, there was uh, this man named Domitian. Now, Domitian was demanded, or demanded the nation, the empire, to worship him. He instituted something called emperor worship. Now, this was a problem for Christians, and of course, it's a major problem for John, because John was preaching to the rest of the churches, you cannot bow to Domitian. Do not bow. You need to hold on to Jesus. Don't let go of Jesus, because if you do, there will be a lot of hell to pay for the tragedy of your life. So, he was exiled into the Isle of Patmos. Patmos is an island that's 10 miles long. You can visit to today. Six miles wide. It's 24 miles off the coast of Turkey. And if you go to the Isle of Patmos, this was the in that day, the Alcatraz. They would send people who were outcasts. And it's pretty interesting when you study this story because now John is the pastor of these churches and he's writing a letter back to the churches where he was pastoring. It's so important to understand these are seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Seven churches with real people, with real problems, and they were indeed in real places. And John wants to say to them, don't let go of Jesus. I don't care if you're being persecuted. I don't care what comes your way. I know you're going through difficulty. I know there is social, social seduction around you that comes. You can't let go of Jesus. You got to keep your eyes on Jesus. But he can't say that, right? Because there is no freedom of speech. There's no ability to say that. He can't write churches that are under Roman rule and, and tell them not to bow. Because Domitian had gone into what he called the prince of emperors. And he caused everybody to burn incense and worship him. This is why the Apostle Paul in Rome um, in AD, uh, AD 67 was killed under Nero. Nero was another emperor that was really, really bad. And much later now, in 93 AD... Uh, just before 93 AD, Timothy was put in charge over the churches because Paul had died. 1 Timothy 1.3. Now, now, Timothy at 80 years old was literally had a mob come in one day, take him out in the streets, and they killed him. And John, the guy who writes this book, was at his funeral. Now, John's the last living apostle. He was one of the sons of Zebedee. His brother had been killed. If you go read Acts 11, he had been killed much earlier in the New Testament. And so John, at 93 AD, is living in Ephesus. Ephesus there in Turkey. And uh, the Romans come in and they pull him out of his house. They shackle him and they ship him to Rome. John gets to Rome and Domitian says, I want you to burn incense in 94 AD. And I want you to worship me. And he says, I won't do it. So they took John. They threw him in a vat of oil and boiled him. When they boiled him, God came among him and protected him, and his skin would not burn. He so freaked out the emperor that the emperor took John and said, get rid of him. And they banished him to Alcatraz. They banished him to the island of Patmos. If you read this story and you look in, the, in Revelation chapter 1 there in front of you, you see verse 10 says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet. The word the Lord's day, that phrase the Lord's day, is synonymous with something in the day of the Roman Empire called the Emperor's Day. And one time a year, the emperor would set the kingdom up to worship him. 
He was the great censor. And isn't it amazing that Jesus Christ, who is the true king, chooses to reveal himself to John as the true king on the day that the rest of the empire is saying he is the fraudulent king. And our king and Lord of glory, who John has not seen in 50 years since he saw them that day on the Mount of Olives, but he only saw him resurrected. He never saw him glorified and sitting next to the Father. Jesus comes down to the Isle of Patmos and he appears to John in the Spirit on the Lord's day. This is how we get the book. And John saying, don't let go of Jesus. Don't let go of Jesus. Now, because he has no freedom of speech, John writes in a code. You saw in the video, breaking the code. What do I mean by the code? Well, maybe you've heard of the song, Bye Bye Miss American Pie. How many of you heard of that song, right? Don McLean? Oh, let's listen to it just for a second. Can you play that just for a second? Maybe we get the get the groove just for a moment. Bye bye, Miss American Pie. I drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Then good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye and singing, This will be the day that I die. This will be the day that I die. How many of you heard that song? All right, you can cut it. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you, anybody know what Miss American Pie is? Anybody? Miss American Pie was a plane. Yeah, it was a plane. And in that plane, that plane crashed with a man on the plane named Buddy Holly. So Don McLean writes a song that is an ode to the death of Buddy Holly. Now listen, if you know that Miss American Pie is a plane, the song, you're like, oh, I get that. If you don't know it's a plane, that song is freaky, folks. I mean, you have no idea what's going on because it's in code. But if you know the song, you know what's taking place. This is exactly what John does. He's writing in code, but you know what the code is? It's a code that all the seven churches are familiar with. It's called the Old Testament. And what John begins to do in this book is he begins to cherry pick scripture out of the Old Testament, and he, he pulls all the scriptures from the nooks and crannies of all the books so that the people who are Jewish in background say, oh, I get that. Yeah, I know exactly what the beast is. That harlot? Yeah, I know what that harlot is. I understand that because of the code. In fact, there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. And out of those 404 verses, 69% of the verses make a direct allusion to the Old Testament. That is mind-blowing. But he never quotes the Old Testament. Why? Because he wants the people in the churches to get it, but the Romans not to get it. He don't want the Romans to get the, the, the book and read the scroll and say, oh, he's telling people to stay faithful to Christ and not bow to Domitian so they can't get the code. He never quotes it, but he pulls imagery from the Old Testament as he is writing this book. Now, part of the problem is not just the Old Testament scriptures. Part of the confusion, and I would say the greatest amount of confusion with the book of Revelation today is this. We keep asking the wrong questions about the book. In fact, most of our questions are questions that we ask that the book was never intended to answer. I would say the number one question people ask when they read the book of Revelation is this. When is Jesus returning? I don't want to burst your bubble, but can I just tell you, the book it never at one moment intends to answer that question, which is probably why there's been hundreds of people that have estimated and guessed that Jesus would turn on that day, and can I tell you, 100% of them have been wrong on the dates. Not one of them has been right. Jesus said, I don't even know the date that the Father has called me to come back to the earth, Acts 1 and 6, right? He didn't even know the Father had set the date. And so that's not the question to be asking of the book. 100% of the time. We think Revelation sometimes is about a calendar, but it's not. If you read the book of Revelation like a calendar, you're confused very quickly. But let me tell you what we're going to do over the next four weeks. If you read the book as a template, everybody say template. It is so crystal clear that the principles of this book can be laid on top of any season of suffering, whether it be the great tribulation in the future, whether there be cancer in your body today, whether it be a divorce you're going through, whether it be kids that are running away from God, whether it be five cops killed in Dallas, whether it be one African-American killed in, in wherever you want to pick, whatever tribulation, whatever difficulty you want to pick, if you want to take the book and see it as a template, you'll see how to thrive and in the midst of turbulent time. The, the truth, the wisdom of this prophecy, if you will live them, the Bible says in verse 3, you will bring a blessing to your life. So here's what we're going to do. In the next four weeks, I want to address, we address four critical questions that are, are, are the most important questions of what we face in life. 
And to summarize it all up, if I could give you one bumper sticker for the message of the book of Revelation revealed, the truth is, what do these truths, what does this prophecy reveal? How we could win in life, but not just life now, but win life eternally. That we join in the victorious, triumphant procession of our King Jesus. That's what this book is all about. So what we want to do is begin where every counselor or pastor would begin. If I were to sit down with someone and talk to them about their life, I would start with a word called priority. Everybody say priority. That's why the title of this message is called The Priority of Seeing Jesus Christ. The Priority of Seeing Jesus Christ. And we want to tweak the question in a minute. Instead of asking, when is Jesus returning? Let's ask, who is this Jesus who is already reigning? Who is this Jesus? Because he's reigning now. Listen to me, folks. And if you don't get that he's reigning now, your behavior's never going to change no matter when he returns. Do you understand that? A lot of people study this book thinking, I want to know when he returns, but they don't ever live any differently in light of that return because they're simply trying to satisfy their intellectual curiosity. John doesn't allow for that. He starts the book with the priority at understanding you must see Jesus and seeing him correctly will change the way you live so that you're ready because behold, the judge stands at the door and knocks. You got to follow through the book in the way that Jesus dictates it to John because Jesus dictated these words right there on the Isle of Patmos. Now, in this first chapter, we get this great glimpse of who Jesus is. Let's read it together. John chapter 1. This is his description starting in verse 12. The Bible says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Listen to the description of Jesus. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and within he had a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Verse 15. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Hear this pastoral cry today. This is not just poetic language. This is John being utterly overwhelmed with a vision of who Jesus Christ really is. This is where life begins for us, folks. To see the one whose eyes are like blazing fire. To see the one whose hair is like wool. And he fell as a dead man. That's why every time God through his angels appears on earth. God's hello. We walk into a room we say hello. God's hello is fear not. Why? Because the moment God truly intervenes into human existence. The only appropriate response is to fall down like dead people. And God to say hello says fear not. I'm here to help you Mary. Here to bring you good tidings of great joy Mary. Why? Because when you really see Jesus, it puts you in a cataleptic state where you fear to even lift your eyes. Jesus is there, and he falls down on his face, and notice the beautiful imagery that we read. He goes on and says, Jesus put his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first. I'm the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. That is a remarkable description, but for every person in this room, that is a black and white description. But if you were living and sitting in this room with a yarmulke on your head right now, that would be full living color. What? Yeah. Because everything he just described Jesus with is an allusion to the Old Testament. Every one of them. And the Hebrews and the Jews would have known very well what John is trying to communicate to them. Let me give you an example. This is a description of Jesus that's two-sided. And this is what you need to know for the whole rest of the book. On the one hand, you see the one hand of Jesus. You see the hair. You see the eyes. You see the voice. You see the feet. Those descriptions, verse 12 through 18, describe God himself as the Father. They're Old Testament pictures and imagery then you see the upper side the sash the robe that's around him the candlesticks that's the great high priest you ask who is jesus he is god and he's the colossal high priest what does he do he's a priest who's coming to john to take care of our sins and guide us to lead a life that honors god that's what he does that's who our resurrected glorified ascended jesus really is you say well craig who cares why well, i care 
And obviously Jesus cares because by the time we get to chapter 6, we're going to go into a tribulation like the world has never seen. And if we don't know and see that Jesus is the priority, we don't stand a hell's chance in Haiti of surviving the onslaught of the evil one. We don't, if, you, if you don't understand and see Jesus the way John is attempting to picture Jesus and sees Jesus, you don't stand a chance. As long as you keep your eyes on Jesus, Jesus is saying, you will be okay. You'll be fine. You get to verse 19 as he ends the chapter. He said, write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and the things that will take place later. And in one verse, you have a template for the entire book. The first chapter is the first part of that verse. Write what you've seen. John saw Jesus. The next one, what is now? What is that? Chapters two and three. That's what God's saying to the churches. Chapter four, with the entrance of tribulation, that's the things four through 19 that will take place later in 2021 and 22 are the new heavens, new earth, when heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss, and I can't maintain my regret when I think about the way, oh, how he loves us. That's what he's talking about. This is a template for the book. Now, I love this part because so many of us miss what Jesus is saying. If you take our eyes off of Jesus, there is hell to pay for the tragedy of your life. If you look now into chapter 2 and 3, what we find is Jesus, because he cares about his churches, is trying to protect the seven churches that are about to go through troubling times. He writes them a letter and he dictates it to John. He does something subtle but significant. Significant, And you're going to want to run around. When I saw this this week, I, I'd never seen it. i got to be honest with you. I wanted to run around. If preacher wants to run around in the study, then I know you want to run around on a Sunday morning. Here's what he does. Think how subtle this is, but how powerful it is. Each of the next seven letters begins the first verse of the letter with a description of the Jesus that was described in chapter 1. I want to show it to you. Chapter 2, verse 1, the first letter. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's what John had just seen. Go to the next letter. The next letter is the angel of the church in Smyrna. These are the words of him who's the first and the last who died and came to life again. The exact description of what John had just seen in Jesus in verse 1 or chapter 1. You go to the next church. The next church is the angel of the church in Pergamum. These are the words to him who has a sharp double-edged sword. Another description of the exact Jesus that he saw behind him in that divine cave. You go to the next letter, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. Another description of the very thing that we just read about in chapter 1. You go to the next one. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. Talking about Isaiah 11. And the seven stars, I know your deeds. And then finally, the last church letter, Laodicea, or the church in Philadelphia, verse 7. These are the words of him who's holy and true, who holds the key of David. And then Laodicea, you'll see, the Bible says in this last one, go to this last one. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. Every one of them describes what Jesus was just painted as in chapter 1. Now, here's what's so amazing. He saw these seven churches. And Jesus is beginning to highlight what each of the churches are going to struggle with. Now, here's why these seven churches. I want to show you a map. The Isle of Patmos is about 24 miles, I told you, off. See one nine there? And why is this book, Revelation 2 and 3, written in seven letters? The first one to Ephesus, second Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. If you were to play dot to dot like a kindergartner, you would realize that Jesus Christ, in speaking to the churches, draws a circle around Turkey. Because there were mailmen that would come out to the island Sometimes, some historians say once a month, they would take all of the letters. They would go, and the first place they landed was where? Ephesus. After Ephesus read the letter, they would go over to Smyrna. And then they would go up to Pergamum. And so Jesus is dictating the letters in the exact way that the mail would go. It's amazing. That alone just makes me know that the Scripture's inspired. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I come across these things, I'm like, what in the world? I mean, gee, you're amazing. Yeah, awesome. You know, this is, this is unbelievable. Jesus picking a circle around Western Turkey to encourage the church. And what's he saying? People say, oh, I know people. I want, I want to talk about the 666, Craig. What's that all about? Or let's talk about the beast. Let's talk about the harlot in Revelation. Or let's talk about the tribulation. Pause for a minute, folks. If we don't deal with our priorities first, we will never stand a chance to survive the onslaught of the evil one. And this is why the letter starts this way. It's why Pastor Chad tweeted yesterday out of Revelation 3 when God hands over all the authorities of the nations to the Antichrist and he goes and deceives and destroys. That's an amazing, amazing verse. Why? Because the onslaught of the evil one in tribulation is unlike anything we've experienced. And this is why he says, you must keep your priority on seeing Jesus. You must look at Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. 
So what Jesus does is put churches right up front and center and says, if you'll look at me, your priorities won't get derailed. Can I tell you three reasons our priorities get derailed? Three reasons why our vision of Jesus gets cloudy. Straight out of chapter 2 and 3. Number one, everybody say pride. Our priorities get derailed through pride. What is pride? I give you a definition. That's when we do good things with wrong motives. We do honorable things, good things with wrong motives. This is the problem of the church in Ephesus, the first one we get to. If you look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 and 2, look what the Bible says. He says in verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, Ephesus, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You've persevered, Ephesus. You've endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary, Ephesus. What is Jesus doing? He's in the cave that day standing up, clapping his hands and saying, Oh, Ephesus, you're doing a great job, man. You're living a life that's just really honoring God. You're living a life that's just doing awesome things for God. But here's the problem, Ephesus. I got something against you, verse 4. Here's what I have against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. I want you to consider how you've fallen. I want you to repent and do the things that you did at first. And if you don't repent, I'm going to come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I never forget when I was teaching in a school of discipleship at a church two churches ago, previous to this. And um, Pastor Chad was on, on staff with me at that church as well. And I was teaching one night. And uh, I'd only uh, come across, you know, and, and understood the book of Revelation just very recently. And I was reading through those seven letters to the churches. And, and uh, this lady came forward one night at the end of class. And she said, um, she said we've, lost our, uh, we've lost our love that we had at first. And my, she was married. And she said, uh, I don't know what to do. She said, I'm thinking about leaving him. And um, she said, what do I do? And I said, well, listen, I'm, I'm pretty young and wet behind the ears. I don't know much advice. I'm not the greatest counselor, but I can point you to the advice that Jesus gives in chapter uh, 2, verse 5. And he says to go back and do the things you did at first. And I asked the lady, I said, what did you guys do at first when you were in love? She thought about it for a minute. She said, every day, because I was not working, he was working a job, I would make him lunch or I'd go pick up lunch and I would go arrive. And as soon as he was coming out of work, to get in his car for lunch, I would meet him at his car and I'd give him lunch and then we'd sit in the car and turn the AC on and we would just talk about life. And I said, uh, well, I want you to do something tomorrow. I want you to get out of the house at lunchtime. I want you to go make lunch and go do the things that you used to do at first. And she said, looked at me with a grimace on her face. She said, well, it's just not gonna work. I, and if I was honest with you, Craig, she said, I don't even think he'll probably let me in the car. Our love's gone. I said, well, either Jesus is right or he's wrong. I don't know what to tell you, right? Either you try it or you don't try it. And so she said, I'll try it. So the next day she gets her lunch, she goes and she meets, right? And the first time he looks at her, he looks with a grimace and thinking, what are you doing here, lady, right? And she said these words. She said, Pastor Craig, I told him, she said, uh, said uh, you know, when we first were together, I used to bring you lunch every day. And she just said, I, I just really miss it. I wanted to do it again. And something in that cold heart broke a little bit. He took the lunch and they started eating. But this happens for a few weeks and they come into school discipleship one night and the husband's with him and said, I don't know what you preached to my wife. He said, but I got to hear that message. I said, sir, I really didn't say anything other than Revelation 2 and 5. Go back and do the things you did at first. Folks, I know, I know that, that marriages do not lose their love overnight and I know they won't come back together in one single day. But I'm not even talking about marriage. And this, this is a very conservative couple and she leaned in that night in school discipleship and she said, Pastor Greg, you, told, you know you told us to, to act like newlyweds? She said, we did. <laughs> you know, I said, like, yes, keep acting like newlyweds. You know, every day, all for the next month, you know. I mean, do whatever you can. Go back and do the things you did at first. And, and I'm not even talking about marriage right here. I'm talking about your relationship with God. You and God, you and your relationship. Do you remember when you first came to Christ, the zeal you had? Come on, church. Do you remember the passion you had? Do you remember the energy you have? Do you remember when you were first maybe baptized in water? Or maybe you went to your first mission trip and you came back. Maybe you went to your first youth camp and you came back and you were on fire for God, man. You were zealous for God. You couldn't stop talking about God. You always talked about God. You rubbed everybody with God, right? I mean, you were the fragrant aroma everywhere you went. You talked about him. You couldn't get enough of him. Do you remember that? See, there are people in this room. Maybe we can't even think back that far, but I want to challenge us for a minute. There have been people here who have lived faithfully for God and faithfully to God for years and years. But somewhere along the line, I'm not sure where it always happens, but with me, instead of being proud, 
proud of the sacrifice of Christ. I begin to get proud of my own goodness and my own ministry and my own behavior. And listen to me, folks. The most important thing I can tell you this entire message. The moment you get proud of yourself instead of Christ, it will squash the love you have for God. Your love will be gone in an instant. When you start getting more proud of what you've done than what Jesus Christ has accomplished. So you say, Craig, what's the solution for the church in Ephesus? Well, a little alliteration makes the lesson linger longer, so I gave you three R's. The first R is this. The same solution as this woman in her marriage. We have to remember. Everybody say remember. That's the solution to the church in Ephesus. Remember. What do you mean remember? Remember when you had a zeal for God. Do the things you did at first. And I'm not sure everything you did when you were a newborn in Christ. But I bet you one thing we all do when we're on fire for God, you know what it is? We connect with other believers. When we're on fire for God, we connect with other Christians. And I know it's so easy, especially in the middle of summer. You got vacations. Kids are out of school, 4th of July. It's easy to let go of the meetings with God's people. It's easy to let go of being faithful in church gatherings. It's easy to let go of connect grouping and connecting with God's people. But here's what I know. When you have grown cold in your zeal for God, sometimes it's hard to see Christ clearly. But when I've grown cold in my zeal for God, here's what God always does. If I'll prioritize the meeting of of God with his people, I'll get in the midst of God's people, and sometimes I see Christ through the eyes of another from whom it is fresh. And somebody will let another fire in me. I can't tell you I've done youth ministry 11 years years and more times than I can count on my hands. There have been people who come to me and said, I was dormant and I was dry for years and you did a communion service and I took the bread and I looked across the table at a brother, across an aisle at a brother and I saw Jesus Christ in that person's eyes and something lit in me. This is what God has called us to be. He's called us to be connected with one another. I want to challenge you. When you prioritize gatherings and meeting with other people, sometimes you see Christ through another person. And maybe this is your takeaway for today. If you're living where the people of Ephesus live, if your heart is cold, if you've lost a step in your race with Christ, maybe the solution for you is just to commit that you're going to be at church. If you come two times a month, you're going to be here for four times a month. If you've, you've, been, you've been debating going through growth phases come September, you're going through growth phases. If you've just dabbled with connect groups a little bit, you're going to commit to a connect group. Why? When you connect with God's people, you see Christ more clearly. It's true every time. It's true every time. I never forget. I had, my wife and I had Knox in January 13th of 2010. And um, at the time, I was at the church I mentioned to you in in the earlier, at at Free Chapel. We were in the other side of Atlanta. And um, three years passed, and we were now living in Cleveland. And I was in Indianapolis, Indiana, getting ready to preach at a conference called Midwest Fest. It was, a, it was a winter fest for the denomination that I was a part of. And I was there getting ready to preach. It was the night before I was to preach. And um, when we preachers go on the road, uh, the joy that we have is we can get a whole stack of recycled sermons. And we can stack points from all the messages we preached in the last year, all right? If you ever see a pastor come to a conference and he don't just th- absolute throw down, then, then something's wrong, all right? He ain't preaching too much back home because you get to recycle. And so I got all these messages together. And I'm sitting in my hotel. I'm just minding my business. What, God, are you going to speak to me? And how can I preach? You know, I'm just reading through these messages. And, folks, I get to a message from February of 2010. It was about a month after I had Knox and I was preaching at the church on a Wednesday night. And I began to read the manuscript because I write at least shorthand manuscript and I'm reading it. And I began to tell the church that night in February of how awesome this experience of seeing Knox being born was. And I told them how we got ourselves in the room and we were waiting and the epidural comes in. And then all of a sudden my wife has a placental abruption so they have to rush her back to do emergency C-section. And I walk in the room and, and I'm excited because they're opening her up and I'm thinking, this is my man child. You know, I'm already seeing the images of me throwing football with him and him running touchdowns and holding the Bible and preaching and laying hands on sick people and heal. I'm seeing all, I mean, this is my first one, right? I'm so excited. All the emotions of the human body are going off at once, right? And I'm telling them with total sincerity 
that that was one of the greatest moments of my life. Tears flowing perpetually. I mean, it was like Niagara Falls. But then I went on in the sermon and I read and I looked at the church that night back in February of, of 2010 and I said, but you know what? Even though as awesome as that was, it didn't compare even an iota to the love and the relationship I have with God right now. I said, it's like anything I've ever experienced. It's amazing. We have intimacy and connection. And right there, the Spirit of God, as I was sitting in that hotel room three years later, convicted me to the core. Because I had lost it. God knew I loved him, but I'd gotten into that burdensome mindset, figuring out problems all the time and not just rejoicing because my name's in the Lamb's book of life. I don't know where it happened. Somewhere along the line, we lose it. We lost it. I lost it. And I got up in front of those young people the next day, and I said, I've never said these words before, but i got to be honest with you. I used to love Jesus more. And I'm wondering if there's anybody here today who could say, I used to love Jesus more, if you're real honest. I used to love Jesus more. What's the solution? Remember. God help us remember the height from which we've fallen and go back and do the things you did at first. Here's the second struggle of the church that will derail our priority of seeing Jesus. It's this word called tolerance. Everybody say tolerance. What do you mean tolerance? Tolerance, the church of Pergamum, they would do good things publicly and wrong things privately. Now, let's be clear. When I talk about tolerance, I'm not talking about we accept everyone, and that's a problem. We accept them in their sin. No. If we're going to love our neighbors, we're going to have to be tolerant of other people's behaviors. Amen? We're not going to be mad when fish come in and they smell like fish. They're not being cleaned. It's okay. We're going to be tolerant of people. We're, in fact, going to pursue those people. I'm not talking about tolerance in that way. What am I talking about is that Jesus criticizes the tolerance of when you tolerate in your own church or you tolerate in your own life the character that characterizes those that are outside of Christ. When you tolerate privately what you condemn publicly. That's the tolerance that Pergamum, that God had against Pergamum. You say, what was happening in Pergamum? Well, Pergamum is is a city where the people in the church lived in the midst of a pagan society. I want you to look at verse 14 of chapter 2, and you'll see what Jesus says about this church. He said, nevertheless, verse 14, I have a few things against you, Pergamum. He says, there are some among you who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, that's idolatry, tolerance, and they, the church, committed sexual immorality. Maybe you're thinking, I have no idea who Balaam and Balak is, And I'm just going to check out for this point. No, no, here's all you need to know, okay? All you need to know is that history was repeating itself. In the days of Balaam, in the days of Balak, they practiced pagan idolatry and immorality was abounding. And they wanted to fit in. They wanted to be accepted by the culture, by the people around them. And when they did, they lost sight of God. And the people of Pergamum, if you go there today, you can still go there. And if you get down in the valley, you'll look up on the side of the hill and there are the foundation of a temple to Zeus, and you think, that's pretty cool. It is. Go look at this on Wikipedia. It's amazing. It, they, they, they went in. Archaeologists went in. They, the, the, the temple of Zeus had been torn down. They took every stone. They shipped it back to Berlin. And they, re, they put this, this statue or this temple to Zeus back together again. You think, oh, well, that's really cool. Until you hear what Jesus has to say. Look what he says in verse 13. He was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Jesus knows what it's like to live in a culture that is always seducing us. He is saying, your city's where Satan lives. Why? Because he knows that there is a temple to Zeus. That's where, that's idolatry. That is Satan. So he's saying, Satan lives right where you live, Pergamum. He lives there. And so he knows. He looks at our nation and he knows what it's like to live in a culture where there's social seduction, where there's persecution. And I can't help but think, folks, whether I get an amen or not, history is repeating itself again. When the Supreme Court announces that we're going to redefine marriage in a way that, listen to me, no other culture on the planet, no other civilization in the history of mankind has defined marriage in this way. And I'm not saying as Christians that we should hate our neighbors. I'm simply saying we better wake up and realize that we're not living in a Christian culture. We better wake up and realize even in our nation this week we're not living in a culture that has Christian principles anymore. And if we want to fit in to the culture around us, if we want to 
fit into the people around us, then we're going to find ourselves losing sight of this Jesus who is described in Revelation. This colossal high priest, this God in the flesh who stands above his church today and says, look at me. And he expects the people who imitate his name to walk in righteousness, to walk in holiness, to walk in his redemption. And it's going to get harder, and it's going to get harder, and it's going to get harder in our nation to continue to represent Jesus Christ without persecution. It's just that way, folks. You better understand it. It's going to get harder and harder and harder. Three years ago, Jason Collins came out as being the only first openly gay NBA player. But the crazy thing about Jason Collins, if you remember this, he came out and said, I'm openly gay, but I'm also practicing Christianity. So they went to an evangelical ESPN commentator named Chris Broussard. If you remember this, three years ago, they go to Chris Broussard and they say, Chris Broussard, what's your opinion of this? And these were his words. He said, the Bible is the foundational document for all Christians. And the Bible says that homosexuality is wrong. So I have a difficult time saying that someone who's openly practicing a gay lifestyle is actually representing the Christ of the Bible. And when he said that, a firestorm swept our nation. You remember this. People were mad as hornets. I mean, they were mad as I get this. Folks, I get it. Gays in our country, they can be, they've been persecuted terribly. It, it is never okay for us to, to pick somebody up and tie them to their ankle to a truck and drag them behind a truck. People have done that to gays. It is never okay to persecute gays in that way. But I'm telling you, something has now turned in our nation. The tides have turned. And I find it disconcerting that in a country that boasts about freedom of speech, that Christians now are subject to thought police. It's not even enough for us to agree with what homosexuals do. Now we've got to think like homosexuals think. And that is not freedom of speech. And let me just tell you something, church. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just telling you, you cannot keep a clear view of the Christ of Scripture and abandon what the truth of the Bible has to say. You must stand on God's word. You must believe what he says. You cannot tolerate it. Yes, we openly love people. Yes, we engage people. Yes, if someone's dealing with homosexual desires, yes, could they be born in it? They're born into sin. All those things, folks. And, and, and if people are part of our church that have dealt with it or they're fighting with it, you know our heart by now. We love them. We care for them. But there's no way to openly practice it and still say that I'm being allegiant to Jesus Christ. I don't know how else to say it. And even for the people in the room that say amen, just because you don't practice that sin or lifestyle, but you maybe run a business that doesn't represent Christ, or maybe you have a marriage that doesn't represent Christ, or maybe you have a marriage that you're doing an emotional affair even as we speak right now, Chris Broussard's critique and comments apply to your sin just like it applies to anybody else's sin. What are you saying, Craig? There is a day and age where we've got to understand that we are coming to a place. If we're calling ourselves Christians, then Christ has to be our Lord. He has to be our Lord. What's the solution if you find yourself in Pergamum, the second R? It's a word that's simple, not popular, repent. You find yourself in Pergamum, you repent. What are you saying, Craig? Repentance is not feeling bad for yourself. That's called remorse. Repentance is about loyalty. What does that mean, Craig? That means that I'm turning my loyalty away from the things of this world and turning my loyalty to Jesus Christ. It's about turning my mind, turning my heart, turning my attitude towards sin, which results in a changed lifestyle. I have to repent. And folks, don't we have to do that daily? Regardless of whatever lifestyle we live in. Repent. That's the solution. Then there's the third struggle of the seven churches. The third struggle was found in the church of Laodicea in chapter 3, and it's this word independence. Everybody sing independence. Happy 4th of July. I'm not talking about national independence. I'm not critiquing national independence. I am critiquing, Jesus is critiquing personal independence. Personal independence. What is independence? I gave you a definition in your card. When we do the wrong things with good motives. When I think about independence, I'm thinking about right now my three-year-old daughter who right now is in the midst of this season where anytime daddy tries to help her out to doing anything, I can do it myself, daddy. Well, babe, you're, you're throwing macaroni all over the floor that I just swept and I mopped. And mom's about to get home and I'm surprising her with a clean downstairs. This happened a day or two ago. Well, and it's just macaroni. No, dad, I can do it myself. The next deal, macaroni all off the side, right? Now, I can do it myself. Well, this is what the Laodiceans were doing. I can do it myself, God. 
That's, that's our nation, by the way. We love our independence so much we celebrate today. Give a whole weekend to it. Our independent, independence. Being personally independent. That's what the Laodiceans were doing. Now, Laodicea, you need to understand, was in the Lycus Valley. What is the Lycus Valley? It's one of the most plush-in valleys of Turkey. And on the north side, they had uh, the mountains that had white caps. They were snow caps. And every spring, the snow caps would melt, and the waters would recede and form a river and come down to the doorstep of Laodicea. And so they were plush with crops. And then go read this chapter. You see that Jesus says, you think you're clothed. You think you're rich. You think you got all this possession, right? You think you have all this health. They had all the things that they think they could need. And they actually believed, catch this, they actually believed, but because they were wealthy, they could build a home. You can build a house with wealth, but you can't build a home. To build a home, it takes Jesus Christ. And there's a huge, huge, huge difference. To build a home, it takes Jesus. And so here they are with the north end, they've got the snow caps. And now on the south end, they have other mountains, but the mountains are, are white as well, but not with snow. They're with my, with, uh, are white with sparkling mineral deposits. And this is where the emperors went and for R&R because there were hot springs, and so the emperors would go and stay for months. This is where people that were in uh, disease, they went to recuperate. They, this is a place of regaining health in this beautiful hot spring area. And the Laodiceans thought, because we have hot springs, we'll be healthy. No. Can I just go ahead and substitute America for Laodicea just for a minute? We can have all the health care in the world, but that doesn't make us more healthy. It might make us more financially secure, but there is only one great physician that can make us healthy. There is only one who is able to heal us. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from whom there is no shadow of turning. So this is what, he, this is what the Laodiceans said. You know what? Some of us us, in our day and age, we actually think that our future will be secure through a 401k. <laughs> That's laughable if you read the book of Revelation. I mean, the only way you have a financial or a, or a security that would be future, uh, uh, totally a future security that is totally secure is through Jesus Christ. And when we take our eyes off of Jesus Christ and we say, Jesus, don't worry about us in America. Don't worry about us in the Laodicea. We got everything we need. Then a moment that happens, disaster comes. We just saw what are the results of a nation that tries to live independently of Jesus Christ this last week. I went to bed literally with tears in my eyes thinking we're going to be in a civil war by the, ne by the next morning. I mean, it's unbelievable what's happening in our nation. I've never seen destruction like this and never so much unrest and turmoil like I've seen this week since 9-11. That is not an opportunity for us as a church to hedge our bets and get scared. It's our opportunity as a church to look at Jesus, stop looking at the things of the world, look at Jesus Christ, stand in solidarity with those that are hurting, actually weep with those who need to be wept with, actually Rejoice with those that are rejoicing and say, you know what? There is a future that is secure in Jesus Christ. We keep our eyes on Jesus, folks. We planned this sermon series long before what happened this week, but there is no greater message than this message today. It's the priority of seeing Jesus Christ. Don't look to the left. Don't look to the right. Look to Jesus. Our nation is in such desperate need of leadership. Oh, somebody stand up and speak. God, give us a leader that can speak in the moments like this. We need leadership. We need the church to be bright, to shine bright. What's the solution? Release. It's what I talk about when you hear me say in the tithes and offerings, when I say to live palms down. What I mean, live with open hands, not this way. Live releasing. If you're trusting in your own salary and you take your eyes off of Jesus, you're in trouble when the dragon, the beast, and the harlot are revealed. If you're trusting in your own 401k, your own economic plan for health care, you're going to be in trouble when Jesus returns. So you got to release. You have to release. And last week I shared with you some really important news in the life of our family uh, that we're having our third child. It's been a process to get to this point. My wife is, is 14 weeks and... Uh, she went to the doctor this week, and the heartbeat's still good, 160s. Still trying to convince her to not find out come August 10th and her next appointment, to not find out because we already got a boy and a girl. Y'all pray for me. She's not in here, so pray real fervently. Enforce my will. I'm just kidding. But I, I, uh, I'm, so, I'm so grateful, right? Shared that with the church. Well, on top of that, a few weeks ago, I couldn't share two awesome things in the same week, so I shared, saved one for this week. I received an unthinkable invitation a few weeks back. An invitation that's uh, mind-boggling. I mean, really mind-boggling. It's an amazing, amazing invitation. How many of you, uh, 
you've, you've received an awesome invitation before. Anybody? Invitations are cool. How many of y'all like invitations? Unless you're like a single lady, you know, and every invitation you get from your best friend from a wedding is like a, a dagger in the heart that turns deeper, right? But, but you, 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 how many of you think invitations are, are cool, right? Sometimes they come verbally. You know, somebody comes to you and says, do you want to come with us? And I'm like, yeah, I've been standing here my whole life. I mean, I'm trying to tweet you. I'm subtweeting. I'm trying to do everything. I'm sub-Instagramming, trying to get you to see that I've got a free night. You know what I'm saying? Uh, sometimes, sometimes they come in Facebook messengers, right, for all the scared guys out there? Like, can I take you out, honey, you know? Sometimes they come in old snail mail. Anybody ever received still invitations in the old snail mail? Handwritten invitation, nothing like it, right? Amazing. Well, listen, I got one in the mail a few weeks ago. Amazing. Unbelievable. You know when you get those invitations and you got like an outside envelope and then you got like an inside envelope, then you got another envelope and then you got the tissue paper before you get to the invitation. You're like, I'm gonna have to have a PhD and envelope opening to get to this invitation, right? I mean, it's just like one after the other. Well, I got one of those. This is the inside envelope, Pastor Craig Mosgrove, and I saw that on it, which I don't know if you've ever gotten an invitation, just a really cool invitation before and you're thinking, well, there's not a lot of Craig Mosgrove. Surely they couldn't have got it wrong, right? I mean, like, there's not many Craig Mosgroves out there, but, but I was really thinking, like, okay, the inside invitation says Craig Mosgrove, and I get to the next one, it's going to be like John Deere. I'm like, ah, oh, they got it wrong, but you know what? I'm showing up, and then it's too late to get there, and everybody's like, oh, that's really cool that you're going, Pastor Craig, and you kind of feel like you're going because I'm going because it's so cool. And, I, I mean, I'm, I'm standing in my kitchen, and I open this invitation. I'm like, stunned, right? Amazing. Amazing. Anybody received a cool invitation? Let me tell you about one I gave, September of 2006. I woke my wife up at 3 a.m., drove her to Atlanta, got her on a plane, flew her to New York City. We were there by nine, spent the whole day, ground zero, Times Square, hanging out, taking her to Rockefeller Center. There's too many people there. My plan is totally disrupted. I pretend that I know where I'm going. I walk right down Fifth Avenue, go all the way down to the New York Public Library, see Elijah Wood hanging out in there in the movie Day After Tomorrow. I go behind it to Bryant Park, and I send there, and I get down on one knee, and I give an invitation. Would you marry me, Meredith Ann Robertson? And she accepted, much to my surprise. If I'm ever prideful about one thing, it's my, it's my proposal, okay? Just let me glory in a minute. I get her back on a plane. We fly. That's a cool invitation, but, but I get this invitation, and it pales in comparison. I mean, this would be better than me, like, getting a personal invitation from Coach K, like Duke University, right, and saying, hey, Craig, I want you to travel the jet with us, travel this whole season, sit on the bench with I mean, this is an amazing, amazing invitation. You care if I share this with you? You all care? Can I share this invitation? Well, here's the problem, okay? There, there's quite a few people here, and, uh, and you got to promise me that you're not going to glab it everywhere, okay? Can you all make me that promise? You're not going to go, I don't want anybody to kill me or get, you know, jealous of me. I mean, sometimes when I read this, I mean, you're going to be, you're going to be surprised, highly, highly surprised, okay? All right, I'll read it. See, the thing about it is it's not that complicated. It's really just, it's really just this short, I mean, like when I read it, it's short, it's like, oh my goodness. I mean, it's like, like, oh, Pastor Craig's one of the inside people. Like my pastor's one of the inside, I mean, it's just, all right, seriously, read word for word, I'm going to read it to you. I almost want Josh to come up here and verify what I'm reading because when I read it, you're going to be like, no, that's not what it really says. Come on, just really read. Okay. All right, I'll read it. Dear Craig, you are cordially invited to receive your award of academic excellence that you doodly earn through 18 years of faithfully pursuing academia. I'm just kidding. That's not what it says. That's not what it says at all. That's... But when I read it to you in just a minute, you're going to say, come on, man, come on. Seriously, read what's in there. How many of y'all just really angry right now? If you're honest, you're just angry. You know, how many of you just really, okay, cool. Sarah, you can probably read it from there. I could, I could turn around and have you read it here. All right, seriously, one last time. I want to hear it from you. Say, we promise. Okay, here it is. Here I am, Craig. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and dine with you and you with me. Signed, Jesus Christ. Now, some of you, you're acting sanctified, but you're really kind of ticked off. 
You're really thinking, are you serious right now? I thought it was going to be something important. I thought it was going to be something unthinkable. Folks, it's something so much more unthinkable than that. We're talking about the Lord of glory who's sitting next to the Father who comes to me and enough knows my name. He already knows my name and he comes to me and says, if you'll open up the door, I'm going to come in and sit down and have some dinner with you and you're going to have dinner with me. And think about this. He's writing to a church in Revelation chapter 3 verse 20. He's writing to a church who's not yet made up their mind about, about who Jesus Christ is. They weren't completely against him and they weren't completely uh, for him. They were just kind of in the middle. They're kind of in that place like people say, if it's possible to have a relationship with you, God, and be in love also with the things of the world, like one night I'm going to sleep in your bed, Jesus, and then the other night I'm going to sleep in the world's bed, and then then I'm going to sleep in your bed, and then I'm going to sleep in the world's bed. If that's possible, God, that's what I want. And Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, please decide, which gives us amazing insight about Jesus because he is all in with us, so he wants us to be all in with him or all out. It's amazing to me because if you have three options, I'm all in with Jesus or I'm totally against Jesus or number two option, I kind of love Jesus but I kind of want the world. If you order those, it would seem like Jesus would say, here's my options, number one for you, number two right here, number three here, but Jesus does not give you the option of two. He says, in fact, if you're lukewarm, I want to spit you out. You say, Craig, why? Because you know what it's like to be all in with somebody. If you've watched Texas Hold'em, somebody gets to the point They take all their chips, they push them to the center, and they say, I'm all in. And then they get up, and they start pacing. And they're wondering, oh, goodness, what's this next card going to be? And listen, when you're all in with somebody in relationship, if you're dating somebody, and you look at them one night, and you planned it all out to tell them you're all in, oh, I'm not not hedging my bets. I'm I'm throwing my heart into this thing fully. The last thing on the planet you want to hear is, oh, that's really cool. I'll think about that. You want them to say to you, yes, I'm all in, or no, I'm all out. And Jesus is all in with us. He gave his life on a cross and says, my chips are pushed to the table. Now he is, if you will, pacing, saying, what are they going to do? Are they going to be all in? Are they going to be all out? And Jesus is saying, I'm all in. What are you going to be? And folks, listen, listen to me very carefully. We think so many times this verse was written to the non-believer, and we've used it that way for years. Jesus, the end of the sermon, is knocking on the door of your heart. If you'll let him in, he'll dine with you. This verse was not written to non-believers. It was written to the church. It was written to people who already know Jesus Christ. And the imagery is he's knocking on the church saying, if you'll let me in, I'll come in and dine with you. I'm wondering if Jesus used the events of this week in our nation to knock on the door of the church. So what is it we do? How do we respond? Laodicea had lost their sight of God and their high priest who alone is capable of strengthening them for the tribulation they're about to face. So what's the takeaway? Come on, band. Here's the takeaway. If you're in Ephesus today, that means you're sitting here. I want you to take your Bible and I want you to circle the word remember. Revelation 2, remember. And I want you this week to think about where you first were when you came to Christ and the things you did. That's your takeaway. If you're in Ephesus, if you're living where your heart is one step behind or it's cold, it's growing a lack of zeal. God knows you love him. God knows it. But you just lost that zeal. You've lost that passion. It no longer defines who you are. You've just lost a step and you know it. Maybe other Christians don't know it, but you know it. You know it. You circle the word remember. Maybe you're in this room and uh, you live in Pergamum. That means you're being tolerating on the internal part of your life the things that you outwardly condemn. You know you're not supposed to be a part of, but you're, you're allowing to be a part of your life. Here's the takeaway for you. You need to repent. Everybody say repent. For others of us, maybe you're in that third group and we're living in Laodicea and we're trying to live independent. You've tried to do life your way for far too long. It's time to release and live palms down. It's time to release and stop saying, I need nothing from you, God. And lean in to utter dependence. See, spiritual maturity is all about dependence on God. Natural maturity is about independence from mom and dad. And sometimes we mix those. We we think it's to be, in, no, 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 it's to be dependent. Raising my kids to be in.
independently dependent on God. And I laid in my bed last night. True story, folks. I don't know how to make this stuff up. I'm laying in my bed with Knox. And this week has been a different week. Really, the last two weeks, his six-year-old brain is really processing now. It's no, no longer just questions that I have to say, like, why does God not eat? It's like questions that are truly pertinent to the Christian faith. I said, said, you're ready, Knox, for big day tomorrow. It's going to be the best day of the week. You can go to the church in the morning, learn about Jesus, and you're going to get to go see Finding Dory. Don't tell Caleb, your friend, what happens because he already saw it on vacation last week. You get to see Finding Dory this week, and it's going to be awesome. I said, I don't know what they're teaching you. I guarantee you they're teaching you about the book of Revelation, about Jesus' return. He said, Dad, no, no, they already did that. Even they started that last week. They started telling us about Jesus. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. I said, you know Jesus is going to come to the earth, right? He's going to set up his kingdom on earth. We always talk about seeing Jesus. And he looked at me and he goes, I'm going to see Jesus on earth? And I said, yeah. And he said, <laughs> and, and it's dark, so I just try to, I cry but not let him see. And then he said, I see Jesus. And I said, yeah, you're going to see him on earth. And he said, oh, that's going to, that's going to be amazing. He said, can I see Jesus now? I said, son, well, that's a little bit different. Of course you can see Jesus. The Bible's very clear that though you've not seen him with your physical eyes, your heart knows him very well. He said, yeah, Dad, I know what that means. It's when I talk to God. I said, yeah. He said, you know, Dad, I've started talking to God all throughout the day. He said, yeah, I pray a lot, Dad. I thought, dear God, as Caleb gets it, Knox gets it. That's all this nation needs is to look to Jesus. Get your eyes off the left and right. Get your eyes off of violence. Get your eyes off of whatever it is that's seducing you. And look to Jesus. Just look at Jesus. And let God restore that joy and that wonder. Oh, I get to see Jesus. <laughs> or have we looked at his face too long that we've grown cold? We've taken it with contempt. He says to Ephesus, remember. He says to Pergamum, repent. He says to Laodicea, release. Would you close your eyes and I want you to stand with me all across this room. Father, again, thanks so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. God bless you.